Welcome to First Baptist Church. We are so glad that you're here to worship with us this morning. And if you're a guest with us, we're especially glad that you're here. And the one thing we'd ask is that you fill out that registration card that's located there in the pew rack. Uh, There's a place on the back if you want to receive our weekly newsletter. Or if you have a prayer request, you can indicate that on the card. And then later on in our service when we take the offering, you can just drop that in. That's our mechanism to get that back from you. So we have a a great week lined up. We're sending a team from our church to Ohio to serve with the Bridge Student Ministry on the campus of Miami University. That's a mouthful to say, but but basically what we want to kind of tell and do in this moment is that we just believe that every Christian is a missionary. You are called to bring the gospel where you live, work, and play. And uh, not only, though, are we called to our own neighborhoods, though, We're called to to go. We're called to go to surrounding areas, to all of our own country, and to the ends of the earth, to the nations. And so this week, we're sending out a team of seven from our church to go serve with the bridge. They're going to be doing move-in day at Miami. And so if you're on that team of seven that's going, would you please stand for just a moment? I knew there was one in our service. And I'm just going to brag on Adam for a second. Adam is leading our trip this year. Yeah, go ahead. Um, Which is an incredible blessing to me because in 11 or less days, my world is about to be changed in the best way possible. What do you mean, Jake? I'm having twins. Well, I'm not having twins. My wife is having twins. (laughs) Oh, I have so many jokes. I'm I'm going to leave them there. (laughs) Okay. Um, But anyway, we are so grateful for Adam being our leader. We want to send him out from our church. So the way that we do that is... We like to lay a hand on that person. So if you're sitting near Adam, which many are, would you just take a moment, lay a hand on him, signifying, God, we're sending this one out from our church with the gospel to go to Ohio, to Miami University, and to serve there with the bridge. And as they lay hands, would we take a moment and we pray for this team, we pray for our service. Let's pray together. Father, as we send out members of our church, we're reminded that if it wasn't for Jesus, we wouldn't have a gospel to tell. We wouldn't have news to share. But because of Jesus now, we have the best news that every person needs to hear. So, Father, I pray that you use this team. Would they carry the gospel with clarity, with power, and with boldness? And would you help them to serve well? 
glorify and honor you, Jesus. We ask this all in your name. Amen. Let's stand together and continue to worship our King. Our God is alive. Celebrate. He's alive. Come on, sing it. Let the children sing a song of inspiration. The God of our salvation, set us free. Death, where is thy sting? The curse of sin is broken. The empty tomb stands open. Come and see. He's alive, alive, alive. Christ the one and only, so powerful and holy, rescue me. Oh, death won't hurt me now. Death won't hurt me now, because he has redeemed me. The grave will ever keep me from my King. I'm alive, 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 hallelujah, alive, praise and glory to you. I think I lost my place on that one, Todd. <laughs> Too many words. We need to take some of them out. Oh, let me get myself set up here. Something. <laughs> well, Todd got a new toy. That's what it amounts to. <laughs> a a six-string banjo. And so. 
Well, this song actually, it, it has this uh, banjo in it, and I've always wanted to put it in there, you know, on the recording. And so um, uh, that's what we're going to attempt to do today. Uh, boy, I think I did this a lot faster in the first service. What's What happened? You didn't use the microphone. That's what service. it is. Threw me off. But uh, you'll, you'll recognize this song. What's a great song by David Crowder that just reminds us that we are forgiven. And uh, let's sing it. Here we go. I was cold between my fingertips. I've hidden in the garden. I've denied you with my very lips. Then I fell down on my knees with a hammer in my hand. You look at me. Arms open, forgiven, forgiven, child there is freedom from all of this, say goodbye to every sin, you are Done things I wish I hadn't done. I've seen things I wish I hadn't seen. Just the thought of your amazing grace. That cried, Jesus, forgive me. Then I fall down on my knees with a hammer in my hand you look at me arms open forgiven forgiven child there is freedom from all of you say goodbye to every sin you are forgiven Six feet under, I could have been lost forever. I should have been in that fire, and now there's fire inside of me. Here I am, dead man walking. No graves gonna hold God's people. All the weight of all our evil lifted away, forever free. Who could believe? Who could believe? come before you this morning just to, to praise your name. You are worthy of our praise. We want to give the glory to you, Lord. Sing it with us. I cast my mind to Calvary where Jesus bled and died for me. 
see his wounds, his hands, his feet, my Savior on that cursed tree. His body bound and drenched in tears, they laid him down in Joseph's tomb, the entrance sealed by heavy stones, Messiah still and all be to my rock, exalted be my God, the rock, my Savior. He is the God who avenges me, who puts the nations under me. 
who sets me free from my enemies. You exalted me above my foes. Therefore, I will praise you, Lord, among the nations. And I will sing the praises of your name. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Good morning. Good to see you today. Joy to worship together, isn't it? What a privilege we have to worship together and now together around God's Word. I'm sharing a series of sermons this month entitled, Prepared to Give an Answer. And we are seeking to be equipped to answer some of the worldviews that are contrary to Christianity. And increasingly, you're going to hear the things uh, that I'm sharing about, and so we want to be ready to answer. So in these five weeks, this five-week series, we're in the third week of it today, we're looking at a different worldview each week that is opposed to Christianity, and we're seeking to equip ourselves to answer that worldview. The title of the sermon comes from 1 Peter 3.15. Let's review this verse again. It says, always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. So can you answer? Are you prepared? Well, we want to move toward that and learn to be prepared. Now, we're reminded that it says to do this with gentleness and respect. And so we're not talking about arguing with people or being condescending to people who don't believe what we believe. We're talking about respectfully and gently responding to honest uh, questions and defending our faith. So today... We want to talk about another of these worldviews that is described by the word skepticism. Skepticism are those who would say, we can't know the truth. We just can't be sure of truth. And so skeptics are skeptical of uh, truth claims. Uh, now, I want to say at the beginning that um, there is a healthy skepticism that we ought to cultivate in ourselves and in our children. Uh, we, uh, we want to be skeptical to an extent. We don't want to swallow everything that we hear, and we want to teach our kids not to swallow everything we hear. I want to share a few verses in this introduction about an honest and healthy kind of skepticism that the Bible talks about. In uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22, the Bible says, Test all things. Hold on to what is good. Reject every kind of evil. So it says for us to test all of the truth claims, all the information we hear, all the preachers you hear, all of the uh, um, teaching or things you read on the internet. Test it. Test it by the Word of God and hold on to what's good and reject what's evil. That sounds like chew and spit, doesn't it? If you've been with us uh, this, so far in this series, you know that I'm sharing each week this technique. It comes from the book Mama Bear Apologetics, which I highly recommend. We have it in our bookstore. It's directed to mamas as well as dads about being a mama bear and protecting your kids from these worldviews that we've been talking about, knowing how to answer them. So what Mama Bear Apologetics talks about is learn to chew and spit and teach your kids to chew and spit. Teach them not to swallow everything they hear, but to chew on it, that is consider it, think about it, and then swallow what's good. That's what this verse says, test all things, hold on to what's good, and reject, spit out that which is evil. So a discerning kind of skepticism is advised here. Let me show an example of that in the Bible in Acts 17, 11. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than those in Thessalonica, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. So Paul was preaching in Berea, saying that Jesus was the promised Old Testament Messiah. So every day he'd preach, they'd go home, and they would look at the Old Testament and compare the Scriptures to what he said to verify if what he said was true. That's a healthy kind of skepticism that we ought to do in regard to all teaching. One more example comes from among the 12 disciples. There was a skeptic among the 12. And I'm glad that there was because it helps us to be even more sure that the resurrection is true. Thomas would fit this definition of a healthy skeptic. Thomas 
uh, was not there on Easter Sunday night when Jesus appeared to his disciples the first time. And so I read to you John 20, 25. So when he got there, the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord! But he, that is Thomas, said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. So Thomas was that healthy kind of skeptic. He demanded evidence. He didn't want to, these guys might have just been carried away. He wanted evidence. The next Sunday night, though, Jesus appeared there to them again, and Thomas saw the nail prints in his hands, and Thomas believed and said, my Lord and my God. So that's a healthy skepticism that can be convinced by overwhelming evidence. But what we're dealing with in our culture is an unhealthy skepticism, a hyper-skepticism that will not be convinced by a preponderance of evidence. And I'm going to deal with it today directly related to the Bible. We could look at skepticism in regard to God. That leads to agnosticism. We've talked about that some already in this series. So today what I want to focus on is what skeptics are saying about the Bible. And we're going to see skeptics' claims about the Bible and seek to answer them so that we can learn to give an answer to those who ask a reason for the hope that we have. And so I want to share with you what I think are three of the most common criticisms about the Bible made by skeptics today. And we're going to try to answer these three uh, common criticisms. So we're going to be very honest and hit them head on. I think it's far better to deal with these questions here than you send your kids off to college or, or somewhere and they have to deal with them in some other setting. They need to hear them in the church. So I want to try to honestly portray um, the, the claims that are made. So number one, the first thing that we hear from skeptics in regard to the Bible is that the Bible is full of contradictions and errors. In fact, just this week, after I'd already written this statement, Marty Sampson, who's a singer-songwriter for Hillsong, a great Christian group that's written some of the songs that we sing in worship, one of those singer-songwriters, Marty Sampson, has come out saying that he's not sure he's a Christian anymore. He's, uh, he's uh, not sure he believes anymore. And one of his statements, and I quote from what he said on Twitter, why is the Bible full of contradictions? No one talks about this. So he said the exact same thing that I've said. And yeah, Marty, we're going to talk about it today. We do want to try to answer that. So skeptics are going to say that um, the Bible um, has discrepancies and contradictions within it. Uh, for example, I'll give you one of those that uh, skeptics will point out. The Gospel of Matthew says that there was an angel at the tomb when Jesus rose from the dead. The Gospel of Luke says there were two angels at the tomb, one angel in Matthew, two angels in Luke. And so skeptics would say, see, there's a contradiction, a discrepancy in the Bible. The Gospel of Matthew will say that uh, Judas, uh, after he had betrayed Jesus, committed suicide by hanging himself. The Gospel of Luke says that Judas fell headlong into a field and his intestines burst and spilled out. That's sort of gross, but that's what it says. So those seem like two contradictory statements. Uh, what do we, how do we make of these contradictions? First of all, let me say to you, J. Warner Wallace was a homicide detective for many years, not a believer, and he began to study this very subject, discrepancies and these eyewitness accounts in the uh, New Testament. And he said that uh, discrepancies of an eyewitness add validity to their testimony. He said, as a homicide detective, whenever I see everybody's story exactly the same, that it points to collusion or conspiracy. He says that, that uh, when there are honest discrepancies, it points to eyewitness account. And so J. Warner Wallace became a Christian at age 35, while studying the discrepancies of the New Testament as a homicide detective. And he wrote the book Cold Case Christianity to defend the validity of the New Testament. So he said we would expect these kind of things. But I think they can be harmonized um, when we put those accounts together. I don't know how that they are, uh, but I believe there's a reasonable explanation. If there were two angels at the tomb, um, then two includes one, doesn't it? One person only saw one and two saw, and some saw two. 
uh, in regard to Judas, I remember the story that the editor of Christianity Today told one time. They had a colleague who had been badly injured, and they got word of that. She was in the hospital, and they were all trying to piece together what happened. You know, when you hear a terrible news, and you, oh, what happened? You're trying to figure that out. And somebody came into their office and said that she was in a car wreck and sustained these injuries that sent her to the hospital. And then they had a call from somebody else that said, oh, did you hear what happened to her? She got hit by a bus. And they said, no, no, we just heard she was in a car wreck. So the person on the phone said, no, I was there at the bus stop. Uh, she got hit by a bus. And here were two seemingly inconsistent stories, contradictory stories. But when they finally got to the hospital and pieced it all together, this colleague of theirs did indeed, was waiting at a bus stop, got hit by a bus, she had some broken bones. Friends put her in a car to take her to the hospital, and they hurried through an intersection and were hit by another vehicle, and she sustained more injuries in the car wreck. Both of these things that were seemingly contradictory were, in fact, true eyewitness accounts. They just didn't have the whole story. I, I, I suppose Judas could have hung himself over a cliff, the limb broke, and he falls into the field and... and, and uh, uh, breaks himself open. That, that's probably what happened. I don't know that, but it, could there not be a logical explanation for those? The most famous skeptic in the United States today, I think, in regard to this issue of skepticism about the Bible is a man by the name of Bart Ehrman, E-H-R-M-A-N, brilliant man who's an expert in uh, uh, biblical textual criticism and uh, he's a best-selling author, wrote Misquoting Jesus and other uh, books he teaches. He, he's a religion professor at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. You often, often see him on TV, on talk shows. Uh, and he writes textbooks. He writes religion textbooks that your kids study in introduction to religion classes in uh, college. But he's not a believer. He's a skeptic. This religion professor who writes these religion textbooks is an agnostic, says, when I die, I'll be like a mosquito that you swat. He's, he's gone. He doesn't believe in life after death, doesn't believe in God. He didn't start out that way. He started out in a Christian youth group in a church. He went to Moody Bible Institute, went to Wheaton College, fine Christian institutions, but he got to graduate school, and he began to study these discrepancies in the Bible, and he lost his faith over them, and now is the leading skeptic in America, probably, that debates Christians and attacks the validity of the Bible. And uh, he, he tells in his book uh, of the, the one that sort of was the straw that broke the camel's back, the error in the Bible that just sort of did him in and caused him to lose his faith. So I want us to look at it. Let's look at the worst today, okay? Here's the one that Bart Ehrman, the most famous skeptic in America today, says he lost his faith over. It's in Mark chapter 2, verse 26. And this verse is talking about an Old Testament story, and it's saying, In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, and then David entered the, the house of God and ate the consecrated bread. The, the problem is that 1 Samuel 21 in the Old Testament says that Ahimelech, his father, was the high priest, not Abiathar. And so there is an error, a discrepancy. And, and so Ehrman um, says he couldn't explain this, he stayed, this is finally the, the straw, this is how he lost his faith and became a skeptic. Uh, well, I, I don't know the answer to that. I, I don't have a, an ironclad answer, but I think there's probably some explanation. You see, Abiathar became high priest immediately after this story because in this story, his father, Ahimelech, gets killed and he became high priest. And if I said to you, suppose I said to you, when President Obama was growing up, he lived in Hawaii. Would you say that was an accurate or inaccurate statement? Now, I think that's an accurate statement, even though President Obama wasn't president when he was growing up in Hawaii, right? You, you know that when I say President Obama grew up in Hawaii, you know he wasn't president when he was growing up in Hawaii. And I think this statement is the same thing. In the days of Abiathar, the high priest, who was known after this time always as the high priest, he wasn't at that moment, but it's like saying President Obama grew up in Hawaii. And so in the day Abiathar was there, Samuel tells us that, he was a part of this story. He, he became high priest in this event. And so it says, in the days of Abiathar, the high priest. Uh, you know, I, I don't know all the answer, but that to me makes sense. 
and you know, sort of part of my response is to Ermin, is that the best you got? I mean, is that the worst you can find? I mean, is this, uh, is that, of all the things in the Bible, this is the worst that you can come up with? That's what he says. What about the positive evidence? You know, we're sort of on the defensive when, when skeptics come up with these, what about this error? What about this? What about the positive evidence? Let me give you just a couple of examples of how the details of the Bible have been proven to be accurate when others had said they were wrong. For example, in the Old Testament, mentioned hundreds of times, is a group of people called the Hittites. For many years, skeptics said the Bible is an error. There it was never any record of any group of people called the Hittites. It is fantasy. It's been made up to fill in the story of the Bible. There were no Hittites. Then in Turkey... They, archaeologists uncovered the city of Ebla, a whole civilization with written records of the Hittite people. The Bible had been correct all along. Those who doubted it had been wrong. Let me give you a second example from the New Testament. In Acts 17.6, it says uh, they dragged Jason and some other believers before the city officials. And the word city officials is the Greek word polytarchs. And skeptics have said this is an error because the leaders in Thessalonica were never called polytarchs. There were no polytarchs in Thessalonica. The Bible is an error. And then archaeologists uncovered an inscription while digging in Thessalonica, and it read, in the time of the polytarchs. They went on to find 18 more, 19 total inscriptions in the city of Thessalonica that referred in the first century timetable to polytarchs in Acts 17.6, proven to be accurate in the minutest of detail when everybody previously, no one had known that there were polytarchs ruling in Thessalonica. I'm saying to you, a healthy skepticism will see that there is a preponderance of evidence that the Bible is dependable. Well, let's go to a second uh, common criticism of skeptics about the Bible, and that is that the Bible has changed over the years. Uh, skeptics will point out that we don't have any of the original writings of the Bible. We don't have the copy that Mark wrote. We have copies of his original manuscript. Before printing was invented in the 1500s, they were copied by hand. If you wanted a Bible, somebody, a scribe, had to sit down and, and copy it by hand for 1,500 years. And so we have copies of copies. The oldest are gone. And, and so they say, you know, in all of these copies, the Bible's changed. I had somebody say this to me just a few weeks ago. You know, I, the Bible all this time, and even to say, more insidiously that the church has deliberately changed the Bible to make it say what they want it to say. So in all this time, it's changed. For example, what they will say, skeptics will say, it's sort of like the game of telephone. Do you know what the game of telephone is? If you're younger, you don't know what the game of telephone is because now you have video games and all these kind of games. But in the old days, before we had those, you had to make up games. And so there was a party game called uh, the game of telephone. You'd have 20 people in a circle or let's say we have 20 people lined up across this stage, okay? If I had time, I'd invite you up here to do this, but I don't have time for that, so let me just describe it to you. What you do in the game of telephone, you start with this first person, and you whisper a sentence into their ear. And it's best if it's sort of a silly sentence, you know, like, um, while I was eating ice cream on the front porch, a blue moon stalked over my mailbox or something like that. And then the next, they whisper it, while I was eating ice cream. And then they whisper it, they whisper it on down the line till you get to that 20th person. And you know what happens by the time you get to the 20th person when you're whispering down a line? The, the last person says the sentence out loud, and it's all garbled up. You know, there's a moose-eating blueberry ice cream or something, you know. And, and, and so everybody ah, laughs because it's changed, right? So skeptics say that's what's happened to the Bible. We're getting this garbled message that's been passed down all this time, and so the Bible is not dependable. Because until the early part of the 1900s, the oldest manuscript, for example, of the Old Testament we had was the 10th century, a long time of copying. And then in 1949, a little Arab boy was looking for his goats that he'd lost. And there was a cave high up on the 
cliff wall, and he chucked a rock in that cave to see if it would run his goats out, and he heard a crashing sound, something break. And it caught his curiosity, and he climbed up and looked in that cave, and there were jars of scrolls. And he had broken one of the jars, and these jars of scrolls contained what we call the Dead Sea Scrolls, writings from the 2nd and 3rd century B.C., some of which were Old Testament manuscripts, including the whole book of Isaiah. And when experts compared the oldest copy we had of the book of Isaiah to the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found amazing that it was almost exactly the same, 95% correct, all the message preserved intact. And it shot down the game of telephone because now we have not just the 20th person in the line, but we've gone back to the second or third or fourth person in the line, and it's been exactly the same. The game of telephone falls through. You see, the reason that was because the Jews who copied those Old Testament manuscripts, so believed in the Word of God, the Bible was the Word of God, that they meticulously copied it and devised ways to safeguard it, and so they counted every word in every book. And so if you made a copy of Isaiah, and it came off one number different, you had to go back and count every word again and find the word that was wrong. And not only that, they would count every letter and come up with the middle letter in every book to safeguard the accuracy of every letter. Can't you imagine if you were copying it and you turn in your copy and uh, you're one letter off. Oh no, I gotta go back. And, uh, but that was the meticulousness with which they guarded it. And so when people say the Bible has changed over the years, understand that in recent times we found older manuscripts, Dead Sea Scrolls and others, that verify that it has not been corrupted over the ages. Now, Ehrman, remember Bart Ehrman, our buddy? He's going to point out in his books that there are, that we have all these variants, that in these copies, even though the message is the same, we've got 200,000 variants. That sounds like a lot. That's what he writes in his books. That's what just throws people. 200,000 differences. There are 25,000 Greek man, or manuscripts of the, of the New Testament. Um, about eight per manuscript differences. And, and so he's going to say, see, there's just all kind of differences that have crept in over the years. That's true. But let me tell you what those are. The great majority of them are one-letter difference. For example, one of the big differences that he's counting among those is in some manuscripts the, word, the name John will be spelled with one N, and in some manuscripts it will be spelled with two Ns. So just get, when people are talking about all these variants, the preponderance of them are a one-letter difference somewhere that is a spelling error or an A for an an or something similar to that. There are some that uh, uh, make a difference in a word. For example, if you read 1 John 1, 4, it may say in your Bible, John says, I write these things to you that our joy may be complete. And you may have a footnote at the bottom in your Bible that says other manuscripts say your joy. So the question is, did John write, I write this, that our joy may be complete or that your joy may be complete. One letter difference, we've got manuscripts that say both. We're not sure which he said. But just understand, when the, the, you hear a skeptic talk about these differences and all these copies that have come, that's the kind of magnitude of the thing they're talking about. They want to know and want to get it right, but it doesn't really impact my faith whether John said, I write this that your joy may be complete, or I write this that our joy may be complete. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. If, what you have to deal with, though, if you're upset about differences in manuscripts, 99.5% are in total agreement. So what are you going to do with the 99.5%? The, the truth the message is revealed in the New Testament that Jesus claimed to fulfill the Old Testament prophecies, claimed to be the Son of God, did miracles, died on the cross for our sins, rose from the dead, sent the Holy Spirit, is building His church, and He's coming back again. And that's clearly stated in every manuscript. What are you going to do with that message? That's the real question. Well, there's a third criticism of skeptics that I want to try to deal with head on, and that is you often hear them, skeptics say that the stories in the Bible are myths or legends. 
they'll say, yeah, you know, resurrection, walking on water, all this stuff. It's just, you know, like uh, uh, Paul Bunyan or some myth, you know, it just developed over time and, and people started believing these legends or myths. The problem with that is for a legend to develop, there must be a period of, a gap of time between the event and the writing of it or somebody tells you no. For example, if, if I said, Britton Cox walks on water, then you would say, no, he doesn't walk on water because you're a contemporary, you're here now. Well, so what critics would say for many, many years said that the New Testament wasn't written until about 200 A.D., 100, 150 years after the events happened, and then these events grew into legends. And so that was their criticism. Then in 1934, a man named Colin Roberts was doing research in the basement of the Manchester Library. Not this library in Manchester, but across the pond in the University of Manchester in England. And in some old papyri, old manuscripts, he found a piece of papyrus about the size of your hand written on the front and the back with John 18, the oldest New Testament manuscript that we have, partial manuscript, and it was dated 90 A.D., pushed all the way back in the first century. These are not legends that grew over hundreds of years. These are written by contemporaries in the first century, shown now that these documents were written in the time of those who experienced them. So let's call to the witness stand some of these writers. You know, if you have a trial, eyewitness testimony is probably the strongest evidence, right? So let's call John to the stand and let John speak. And in John 19.35, here's what John says. The man who saw it has given testimony, and his testimony is true. He knows that he tells the truth, and he testifies so that you also may believe. John is saying here, I saw this. I'm telling you what I saw so that you may believe. Let's call Peter to the stand. And in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 16, here's Peter's testimony. We did not follow cleverly devised stories when we told you about the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in power, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. Let's call Paul to the stand. And here's Paul's testimony in 1 Corinthians 15, 3. For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures, that He appeared to Cephas and then to the Twelve, and after that He appeared to more than 500 of His brothers and sisters at the same time, most of whom are still living, though some have fallen asleep. So when Paul wrote this, he said, here's the eyewitnesses, we got 500 of them. You don't believe it, you go ask them. A few have died, but most of them are still alive. If you think we're not telling the truth, you go ask them. It's hard to get 500 people to lie together all at the same time. And these are eyewitnesses. And he went on to say in verse 7, Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, and last of all, he appeared also to me. One more testimony. Let's call Luke to the stand. Luke, did you just make this stuff up? Where did this come from? Luke 1.1 1, 1 says, Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those from the first, were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. These are not legends or myths. These are accounts written in the first century that were by eyewitnesses that say, I've carefully investigated this because I want your faith to rest upon a firm foundation. The Bible has been the most written about most criticized, most examined, most pulled apart book in history. And it's withstood the test of time. When its critics are long gone, outliving every criticism, still people today around the world are gathering around this book 
and looking to it for the Word of God. The Bible's taking the best shots the world and the devil can give, and it's still recognized as a source of truth for people in our day today. A healthy skepticism is good, test all things, but I pray that you would see there is preponderance of evidence that taking a step to believe in Jesus is not like stepping into an elevator shaft and just hoping there's something down there. It is like looking at the spot that you will step and say, I must step somewhere and I see the evidence that this is worthy of my trust. It will hold me. 2,700 years ago, the prophet Isaiah wrote this. It's quoted in the book of Peter. All men are like grass. The grass withers. The flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. This is truth. It's worthy of your investigation. It'll hold up to your skepticism. Face your life upon the one who comes from the pages of this book. Would you pray with me? Oh, Father, I pray if there are those who are skeptics here today, I'm, I'm glad they're here. Skepticism is good for us to have. I pray, Lord that there will be a healthy skepticism that will be open to the evidence and to see that you have given us firm reason to believe. I pray you would equip us with gentleness and respect to be able to answer anyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. Would you stand with me? We're going to sing a song of invitation. and I want to invite you today that if you are ready to take that step and say, you know, I've got to live my life on some foundation. I believe. There's evidence to believe that Jesus is the Son of God who rose from the dead, who's coming back again, and that He is the one who offers forgiveness of sin and, and life and hope. Would you today, even though all of your questions may not be answered, say there's far better evidence to believe in Him than to doubt this book that stood the test of time? I put my faith in Jesus Christ. I invite you to come forward. I invite you to come for baptism and follow him. I invite you also to join our church. Whatever, how are God speaking to you in this time? Let's sing together. Come just as you are. Hear the Spirit call. Come just as you Come and see, come receive, come and live forever, come just as you are, hear the Spirit call, come just as you receive Christ the King, come and live forever, Lord. Amen. Thank you. Please be seated again, if you will. We're going to give our offerings now uh, to worship God. If you have a guest card or prayer card, you can place that in the offering plate. We have a ballot to take up in a few moments, but don't put that in the offering plate. I'll give you the instructions about that a little bit later. If you're a guest with us, we're so glad you're here. Uh, I'll be at the Welcome Center right after this, and uh, we'd love to meet you if you'd like to stop by. I have a gift for you. Thanks for coming today. Let us pray together. Lord God, thank you again for a wonderful day, another wonderful message, Lord, about, uh, about, our, about the Bible, Lord, and what you left for us. Now, as we just give back to, to you what uh, what is yours anyways, Lord, just uh, ask blessings upon you. Forgive us of our sins. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, we think as Christians we should be the happiest people on earth because we have joy. We have the joy of the Lord. So uh, you sing along with us. I think you'll recognize this song. Here we go.
happy day. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day. When Jesus washed. When my Jesus washed. Oh, when he washed. All my sins away. sins away Be seated for just a moment, Will, and we have a matter of business. There's a ballot in your uh, bulletin. If you're a member of our church, would you take that out? It's a tan-colored sheet, and we participate in this process to elect deacons, so that's an important thing. We have two men who received back in June from our church the required 10 nominations, met the qualifications, agreed to serve. This is now the final yes or no vote. Their pictures have been in the newsletter and so forth. So you're not voting against one another. You can vote yes or no on each of these. So they're listed there. Would you vote yes or no on Josh Hunt and Bill Sight to serve as deacons? And then final step in approval of our financial plan. And so we, according to our bylaws, need to vote yes or no. We've had two discussion meetings and so forth. This is the final just yes or no vote. If you're a member of our church, would you mark that? Pass it to these aisles. Let's do it quickly because I preach too long and we need to move quickly, okay? Uh, so fold it over in, from top to bottom in half, pass it to the aisles, ushers come on and pick them up. Thank you for doing that, thank you for participating. I preached too long in the first service, I tried to cut out some things, I think it got longer, I don't know what happened. So th when you go out and there are people standing there waiting to get in, smile and say, he tried, he just say, he tried, or something like that, okay? All right, we almost got these. 
Could everybody, Tim, come and close us, if you will, please. Let's close in prayer. God, we thank you for your word and that it's truth and that it uh, guides and directs us in our life. And Father, as we just sang, we thank you that we have forgiveness of sin, that you've wiped away our sin, that we have freedom uh, in you. God, it's in your sons and we pray. Amen. Oh, happy day. Oh, happy day.